Take your Bibles, if you would, once again to the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel in the 24th chapter, and we want to key in on just verse 24, or 44, sorry, this morning. As I mentioned last Sunday, uh, I had originally looked to this passage as a means to provide an overview before we dive into our study in the book of Leviticus, but as I read the context of the passage, uh, 36, verse 36 to the end, and particular verses 44 through 48, um, as we looked at last Sunday, the text reigns supreme and the text has a different focus, a different theme, uh, and a different intent, and so we brought that forward to you last Sunday, this idea of being witnesses of this gospel. And so what I want to do this morning then, before we dive into Leviticus starting next Sunday, Lord willing. I wanted to give a bit of an overview, uh, an explanation for the uh, series, uh, to get you excited about the series, perhaps, and also lay some groundwork as we walk through the book of Leviticus. I feel a little bit like we're entering into a Buckley's book of the Bible. How many of you know the tagline for Buckley's? It tastes awful, but it works. And, and so Buckley's <clears throat> has just sort of uh, owned the reality that their product is awful. It, it's gross. It, it, just taking the cap off and smelling their cough medicine uh, can induce a little bit of nausea. It's not a good thing to drink. It doesn't taste good at all. And no amount of flavoring, be that cherry or bubble gum or whatever it may have you, is going to mask the taste of Buckley's cough syrup. But even though it tastes awful, it works. And I feel by times, perhaps, as we look to go into the book of Leviticus, we might see it as a Buckley's book of the Bible. We know that it's good for us. We know that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And yet we're not that excited about learning from it. Leviticus, they say, is where Bible reading plans go to die. And so we start off fresh here in the new year, January 2nd, 2022. We're in Genesis. We're going to do great. Exodus, we get there, and then Leviticus, a couple chapters in, and everything goes off the rails. And I hope and pray that that is not the case. And so there's many reasons why we might study from the Old Testament. And that's what we try to do here at Grace Baptist. We do a series through a New Testament book or books, and then a series through an Old Testament book. It was the Old Testament, the former covenant, of course, it was the Bible of Jesus. When Jesus talks about the scriptures, when he is here on earth, when he speaks from them, when he says that he is the fulfillment of prophecies contained within them, when he references historical events such as Adam and Eve and their creation and their fall and Jonah and other things, he is referencing the Old Testament, the former covenant. It is his Bible, and so he wrote it. He believed that it not only was important, but it contained and is the very words of life. It is the words of God since they are his words. And so if it was uh, inerrant and inspired and necessary and vital for Jesus Christ, it ought to be the same for us even on this side of it and now into the new covenant. It was, of course, then also the Bible of the apostles and the disciples 
when they quote from it, when they see it in a new light, when they come to understand it better and, and partly even hear from this passage, uh, it is their Bible as well. And so it has importance and vitality and necessity for us as well. And so I hope that the, these um, realities among many are that we should be excited about going into the Old Testament. And yet, I believe that as we look at Leviticus with all of its rules and regulations and weird laws and prohibitions and a full sacrificial system with all of its detail, I think it might be a little bit, we might be a little bit hesitant going in. It was interesting, even as Pastor Luke and I this week were talking about these things, we typically preview the sermon on Friday mornings and talk about the text and stuff. We were talking about how could we enter into the world of Leviticus? How could we make that a bit more real? And our lives, especially as it relates to uh, the consumption of meat, are very sanitized. We don't see the butchering process. We go down to the grocery store and we, it's all shrink-wrapped and ready to go for us. And so we did find on YouTube a few videos of animal sacrifice or animals being butchered. There are not many, mind you. <laughs> And uh, such as they are, even we were sort of wondering how queasy this would make anybody watching it. And so we come to the book of Leviticus with all of the sacrifice and all of these things, and we are a bit reticent, a bit hesitant to enter in. And I hope to dispel some of that this morning. And so follow, if you would, single verse, Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, these are my words. That I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Very simple sermon this morning, only five points and no subpoints, but I hope that the, this will bring us an, into a, a measure of excitement and anticipation about going through a book of the Old Testament, in particular the book of Leviticus. The first point then this morning is that every part of the Old Testament points to Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible had three main designations, three large sort of groupings. There was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses. It was very near and dear to any Jewish heart, certainly. And so we have the Pentateuch, and then we have the writings. These would be the books sort of of poetry. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, or Canticles as different names. These five books then, sort of in the middle at least of our Old Testament Bible, are the writings, the poetry, the poems and the songs of the nation of Israel. And then under the heading of the prophets is everything else. The historical books, historical narrative, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, history of Joshua and Judges, Ezra and Nehemiah, the writings of all of the prophets, both major and minor, as we might des further designate them, but into a Hebrew audience, to a collection of Jews, their Bibles were in three different parts, three different headings, three different groupings. And Jesus mentions all three here to his disciples. The Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Psalms, the writings, and the prophets, the bulk of the writing of the Old Testament, in all of these, he says, in every one of these groupings, I am to be found. And so no matter what the genre is in the Old Testament, whether it's a genre of history 
whether it's apocalyptic literature talking about the end times or uh, the judgment of God on the world in different ways, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, these books and others, Joel, whether it's prophetic literature, whether it is narrative literature, whatever the genre is, whatever the heading is, Jesus says every one of these parts of the Old Testament, it all talks about me. He's the one that wrote it. And he is the fulfillment of it, as we'll see in just a moment. And so it should excite us that a book like Leviticus has Jesus in it and through it. Jesus is not just to be found from Matthew to Revelation of Jesus Christ, but he's to be found from Genesis to Malachi as well. And that ought to cause us to have great anticipation, great excitement about studying any book of the Bible, to see Jesus in it. But in the second place this morning, we see that every passage of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Now, is that a bridge too far? Because I think we can recognize that there are, in each of the parts of the Old Testament, yes, Jesus is to be found there. Most often, when the New Testament authors quote it, they quote from the Psalm, Psalm 22, Matthew and others, and saying that these parts of that Psalm are fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the, the reality that they cast lots, they gambled for Jesus' outer garment. All of these things were prophesied about in the Psalms. The prophecies of Jesus in the prophetic literature, yes, we see that. And the reality of Jesus even and especially in the first five books of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, where he is the prophet in the spirit of Moses, and so on and so forth. But are we right in saying that every passage of Scripture has Jesus in it? I believe that we are. It's all about him. Now, as we're going to see as we walk through the, the book of Leviticus, there's a way to do this with care and with caution and understanding literature and understanding the Bible. We can't just arbitrarily find Jesus around every corner and everything that Leviticus says and every type of metal used or every color of fabric used, Jesus is there and try to tie that all back to Jesus in an arbitrary or false way. That's not what we're talking about. But I hope that as we continue to walk through Leviticus, or we start walking through Leviticus next Sunday, Lord willing, from chapter 1 all the way through, that we will see Jesus in every passage. We will see him there. That is the theme of the book of Leviticus, is to be clean. What does it mean to be clean before God? What does it mean to be unclean? How can we, as unclean individuals, enter the presence of God? How can we remain in God's presence? How can we be clean? We know and recognize that all of that finds fulfillment in Christ. Only in Christ can we be clean. Apart from him, we are unclean, and only in him can we be clean. How he has fulfilled all of the parts of the law, how he is the fulfillment of the sacrifices. And again, as some of you know, as I've spoken to you, but to let everybody know, my plan in 2023 is to go through the book of Hebrews. But I do not believe that you can go through the book of Hebrews unless you also but first go through the book of Leviticus as we're going to do. Concepts and understandings of the atonement, what it means to have a sacrifice for sin, what does that mean? What has Christ done for us on the cross? To plumb the depths of that, we need to understand what we find in the book of Leviticus. And so I am excited to show to you, as is Pastor Luke and any guest speaker that comes in from the passage, Jesus through that passage, he's there. And that's exciting, and it ought to excite us. That as we go back in time to the world of the nation of Israel at this time and unpack why God would do this, why he would deal with his nation in this way, 
why we, he would institute the sacrificial system that had already been instituted all the way back in Adam and Eve, and certainly all the way through. What is the meaning of the feasts and these times of celebration in the nation of Israel? All of the painstaking detail that's put in there, put into the tabernacle. We have a lot of that in Exodus, but then some in Leviticus as well. What does it all mean? What does it all point to? What is it all a sign of? And I can't wait to get into the book and show you Jesus in every passage. Thirdly, this morning, we see that the Old Testament then is fulfilled in Jesus. He says at the end of verse 44 that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's all about him, it all points to him, and he fulfills it all. Now, there's at least one way that I do not want you to hear that this morning. Do not hear in that, that the Old Testament ceases to have any value. If Christ has come and fulfilled it all, then ought not we to leave it aside and pick up the story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and continue on through the writings of the apostles? Should not our focus be primarily, if not exclusively, on the new covenant in Christ's blood that he instituted at that last supper with his disciples? Should not that not be our focus? And should we not lay aside then the old covenant? And I would argue no. Because in the old covenant, we have the foundation for the new. And in the old, we have a greater understanding and provides a broader look at who God is and helps us to fully appreciate the new. The Old Testament is therefore not rendered unimportant or meaningless because Christ has fulfilled it. It has great value to us, especially today. So do not hear in that when I say that Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament, that the Old Old Testament no longer matters. It matters greatly. But our understanding of it is now amplified because of the new. We're on the other side of Christ as a fulfillment of it. And so that also is exciting to be alive at this period of time. How are some ways, what are some ways, though, that we should hear that phrase, that Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament? I think there are certainly at least two. In the first place, understanding then that every part of the Old Testament finds its goal in, its fulfillment in, its end point in, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's exciting that that Old Testament individuals, the individuals that live during this time period, for them, each prophecy each historical event, each narrative, each apocalyptic writing, each recounting of the judgment of God, all of these things were future. They were anticipating these things, but they were not seeing them fully come to pass. They were waiting. We now are on the other side of that, and we can look back and now see how each one of these things was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and it's, it's fascinating and exciting. But not just for our intellectual benefit, but to know and understand that God from the beginning has spoken and written truth to us. It is all part of his plan. It is all part of his story. Nothing contradicts itself in there, and it's all moving towards Christ and still moving towards Christ and his second return. And so all of this ought to excite us that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. The second way I think that we need to understand this and recognize this is that there are individuals that do not believe the Bible, do not believe in Christianity, not that Christianity exists, but they do not believe that Christianity is true. 
And they go to the Old Testament in particular to, to marshal this argumentation. In the book of Leviticus, you have things such as do not murder, do not commit adultery, homosexuality is sin. These things are there in the book of Leviticus. But you also have in the book of Leviticus the reality that you should build a small knee wall around the roof of your property so that nobody falls off. You should not eat uh, an animal's meat with the milk that that same animal produces. You should not mix fabrics in your clothing. And so the argument goes something like this. How can we take you seriously as Christians when you don't take your own Bible seriously? You pick and choose. These things you say are still relevant, still true, still what we follow, but these things are not. And so since you pick and choose, we cannot take you seriously. And there are at least two answers to that. In the first place, we do not pick and choose Scripture. We understand that Scripture interprets itself. And Scripture itself lets us know that as far as the Old Testament law, it comes in three distinct parts. There is the moral law of the Old Testament most succinctly presented for us in what is known as the Ten Commandments. These moral codes do not change. They are representative of the character of God, and they are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That part of the law, the moral part of the law, is for us today as it was for the particular Jewish nation at a particular time. There is also then the civil law. This is how do we interrelate to each other as a society, as a nation, in Israel's case. And so, for instance, if uh, somebody uh, comes onto my property and is hurt, how do I take care of that? That is not criminal activity. That's not against the moral code. It was an accident. There's some measure of negligence on my part. What does that look like? How do we interact with each other as fellow human beings in a way that is positive and productive? And the civil part of the law um, explains to us what that looks like. And the amazing thing is, much of our current civil law is based on the Hebrew civil law of Leviticus and Exodus. It's, It's all there. It's what has become known as natural law. And it's still part of Canadian jurisprudence. It's part of our culture even today, thousands of years later. There are good moral reasons why the morality of the civil part of the law is still in effect today. And yet there are parts of the civil law that were just for the nation of Israel at this period in time. And then thirdly, there is the ceremonial part of the law. There is much, especially in the book of Leviticus, that relates to feasts and celebrations and sacrifice. This is all ceremonial as part of the keeping of the law of God. And so we understand that that part does not relate to us today as it did for the nation of Israel then. But what a joy it is to study it and understand and see God's character in it especially the Sabbath rest, which goes all the way back to creation. And we read that just on January 1st, Genesis 1, God rested on the seventh day. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath, that one day in seven principle. And then the one year in seven, and then the year of Jubilee, the every seven, seven sevens, 49 years, and then the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. Every Jew, at least once in their lifetime, all things considered, would celebrate or was supposed to celebrate the year of Jubilee. 
What a blessing that God builds this into the ceremonial part of the law. We do not pick and choose Scripture. We understand how Scripture is written, and we allow Scripture to speak for itself. But any individual who would say that my desires, my lifestyle, even though it is prohibited in Scripture, I don't like that part of Scripture, so I'm just going to focus on the parts about love defined by me in Scripture. That actually is picking and choosing Scripture, not what we're doing. We don't pick and choose Scripture. We understand Scripture. We study Scripture. We believe Scripture. We submit to Scripture. But even given that, there's a second way that we mean when we say that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, and in particular the law. And Paul says in the book of Galatians that Jesus took the law and nailed it to the cross. Any idea that we must keep the law or that we can even attempt to keep the law post the cross is not only foolishness, it is actually an attack on what Jesus did on the cross for us. One of the purposes of the law, Paul says, is that it's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It's an attempt to show us the folly of attempting to be perfect on our own. We can't. We need Jesus. We need a Savior. One who was perfect and perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. And then died a sacrificial death in line with the law, in line with justice for us. And then conquered sin and death, the penalty for not keeping the law, when he rose to life again the third day from the grave. This is what we need. This is the Savior that we need. And so anyone that would go back into the Old Testament and attempt to make that binding in any way on us post the cross, again, does not understand the message of the Bible in its entirety and not even really the message of Leviticus. And so every part of the Old Testament points to Jesus, every passage of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. And our fourth and fifth point this morning is outside of this text of Scripture, but the question must be asked, is our understanding then of the Old Testament, and is our understanding here this morning, is it correct? Are we correct in saying that every passage of the Old Testament speaks of Jesus and it's all fulfilled in Jesus. I think we're correct in saying that just based on the words of Jesus alone, but notice the apostles, those that took the words of Jesus and have brought them now to us. The the apostles then began to read the Old Testament this way, and you can tell they read the Old Testament now in this way by what they write. They didn't see this before, but notice what it says in verse 45, then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Even as he's sitting there with them at that last supper and says, this is me. This is the new covenant in my body, in my blood. They now begin to understand the Old Testament in a way that they did not before. And these disciples of Jesus Christ as young boys would have been catechized in the Old Testament. They would have gone to the temple. They would have gone and listened to the word of God read and explained by the rabbis. They thought they understood the Old Testament, but until they met Jesus, the author of the Old Testament, who explained the Old Testament to them, they did not fully understand it. And so as they write, you'll notice they begin to quote from the Psalms and the prophets and the law of Moses in a way different than they previously had done. And Paul says, as we've already quoted in 1 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for instruction. It's all profitable 
from Genesis through the revelation of Jesus Christ, not just Matthew through the end. And so the apostles read the scripture this way, the Old Testament this way, and they began to preach the Old Testament this way. Just this morning in our Bible reading plan, we read from Acts 2, and Peter, when he gets up on the day of Pentecost, does this. He goes back into the Psalms, and he quotes from the Psalms to show them that this is Jesus Christ. He quotes from the Old Testament prophetic word from Joel and Isaiah and others to say, this is Jesus, this one who you crucified. He's Jesus, and here's why he goes into the Old Testament. He begins to preach the Old Testament this way with a better understanding of it, a more fuller, richer understanding of it than he had before. And so if the first disciples of Jesus Christ and the apostles of Jesus Christ both began to read and preach the Old Testament this way, I believe that we are also in good company as we do the same. And so we look forward to starting the book of Leviticus next Sunday, Lord willing, with Leviticus chapter 1. Read it, marinate in it, and come prepared to see Jesus in it as we walk through it. But then as we close this morning, what does any of this mean, really? That's great. But how does this encourage us? How does this impact our lives this morning? I was reading another book this week. I know that comes as a shock to many of you. And that author brought something out that I had not seen before. We see, starting at verse 13 of our passage in Luke 24, a narrative, a story that takes place before Jesus appears to his disciples. Two disciples are leaving Jerusalem after all that has happened over this weekend. Over two weekends, really. On a Sunday, there was the triumphal entry. People were putting down palm leaves and their coats shortly after the resurrection of Lazarus. There was much buzz about the city. Jesus comes in, riding on a donkey. He fulfills prophecy from Zechariah. Everyone seems to be in a festive mood. The Messiah has come. And then, of course, the trials Friday, he is crucified and buried just before sundown, before Sabbath begins. There is despair, hopelessness, darkness, where just a few days before there had been hope and excitement and ecstasy. But then on that Sunday, a week after the triumphal entry, Jesus Christ comes back to life from the dead And Matthew's gospel says that many others left the tombs, came back to life from the dead. Now imagine being in Jerusalem and bumping into somebody on the street that you'd attended their funeral not that long ago. Stuff's happening and these disciples are excited about it and they're talking about it. And Jesus joins them, but they don't recognize who he is. Now let me ask you, as this author asked of his readers, if you were walking with two people and you're the resurrected Jesus, they don't recognize you, how would you reveal yourself to them? How would you prove the resurrection to them? Wouldn't most of us say, it's me, guys. (laughs) Look. Look at the scars. Look, it's me. It's me, Jesus. I'm back. See. What does Jesus do instead? He says, listen. Where does he take them in verse 27? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they stop. They eat a meal together. And then they recognize him in verse 31. Then he leaves. And they say in verse 32, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked 
to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. Where does Jesus go to prove to these two disciples that he is the risen Messiah? Does he go first to what they can see? No, he goes first to what they should have known from what they should have read. He goes to the scriptures. What does Jesus tell us in Luke's gospel? The rich man dies and goes to the fires of hell and he sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And what does he do? He calls out, he says, Abraham, please, send somebody back. My brothers can't come here. Send somebody back from the dead. Send an angel, send somebody. And what is Abraham's response? They have Moses and the prophets. And if they do not believe, they will not believe even if someone comes back to life from the dead. Grace Baptist Church, we do not need to have with us present this morning the physical, tangible, resurrected Jesus Christ. He's real, and he's in the heavenly. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of his Father. But it is not what we can see that prompts us. It is not what we can see that we trust in. It is what we know. It is the words of Scripture. And we have the same words that Jesus and the apostles had 2,000 years ago. We have the same truth, the same tools, the same methodology. Why is it that Sunday in, Sunday out, we don't change it up very much? We faithfully, hopefully, preach the Word of God. Why do we do that? Because that's what God has called us to do. It's the same truth that it was for the Old Testament Israelites, that it was for the New Testament apostles, that it is for the current saints. We have the Word of God. It is true. It is reliable. It is inerrant and authoritative. And we must know it and submit to it. And I can't wait to get into the book of Leviticus and show you all week by week, as hopefully we have from Romans and Joshua and Acts and all the things that we've done years previous. Jesus is there. He is real. He is true. He is the Lord and Savior. And I can't wait to show him to you from a different book, the book of Leviticus, starting next Sunday. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we come before you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. How many times, Father, have we been swayed by what we can see? How many times have we been shaken by what we can see? We focus on our experiences. We focus on our feelings. We focus on the things immediately around us. And yet, Father, what do you constantly bring us back to? Your word. Your word written. Your word spoken. Your word sung. Your word prayed. And your word in human form, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so, Father, thank you that Jesus is everywhere in this book. He is all throughout the Bible from Genesis to the revelation of Jesus Christ the righteous. He is on every page. He is in every passage. He is to be found everywhere. He is the fulfillment of it all. He is our Lord and he is our Savior. And his followers understood this because Christ opened their minds to be able to do so. And they began to read all of Scripture this way and preach it this way. And so, Father, I pray that we would faithfully do the same here in 2022. We have the same truth, the same word. It is tied to history. It's real. It's tangible. It's true. It actually happened. You are real. 
Jesus is real. The resurrection is real. Salvation through him is real. All of this is real. And I pray, Father, that we would know that. And so as we go into this look at an expanded understanding of the sacrifices that you instituted for your nation of Israel, the feasts, the different times of celebration, all of these things, Father, may we see Jesus Christ in them. May we see our need of him in them. May we see your glory in them. Father, may we understand your word in a more deep and abiding way, and thereby may we come to understand you in a deeper way. Reveal yourself, Father, to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.